0: Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain Together we've created the podcast Control the Coronables which includes some of the top players from around the world Our objective is very simple We want to be able to educate entertain and energise the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through Hope you enjoy our next podcast.
1: Welcome to episode eight of Control the Corona Bulls. I'm Dan Kiernan. This, This episode is Anthony Ross, who's the director of Mentally Tough Tennis, a sports psychologist, a former top 150 ATP player, got an unbelievable story. Enjoy the show, guys. Ross, director of Mentally Tough Tennis, also a top 150 ATP doubles player back in the day and All-American at Pepperdine University. How are you doing? Doing well, Dan. Uh, hi, John. Great to be here with you guys. Cheers, Cheers Anthony. Great to have you here. And and how so? How how things in Australia during this during this crazy time?
2: Pretty hectic, pretty hectic. Yeah, we're on lockdown. Not as severe, I don't think, as you in Spain. Uh, but uh, we are, yeah, supposed to stay in inside, and we are allowed to go outside for walks and so forth within our within our suburb. But uh, other than that, not supposed to be travelling unless it's essential. So. Pretty good lockdown, but but not as severe as it sounds as as uh, you guys in Spain. And are people listening in Australia? I th- we're doing a pretty good job, I think. I think we've, we've, at least in terms of the curve, it's flattened pretty quickly. And um, we're probably blessed in terms of uh, having plenty of space around uh, yeah. our population. And so, um, yeah, so hopefully we're... we're Doing
1: a good job with the, the flattening of the curve early on. So, yeah. And and I, and I would imagine it's a it's a busy time for you with you know at this this time everyone's everyone's stuck indoors. You know, yeah. you as a as a fantastic sports psychologist. You know, what what do you work on during this time? You work on probably the physical side of the game, so also the mental side of the game. So tell us a little bit a little about that.
2: Yeah. So well. The way I work, I work a lot with around matches and match play. So that's obviously slowed down with no tournaments. But what I have done is uh, this year I consulted to the North Carolina men's college team in the States. And actually the associate uh, head coach there, Trip Phillips, had an idea throughout the season to do a a 20-day challenge where the idea was that we would give the players different challenges uh, for 20 days, for about 20 minutes per day. So we did that. And that went really well. And so when, this, when we got into lockdown, I started talking to coaches and particularly with coaches, you know, all sorts of um, difficult circumstances around employment and, and, as you say, trying to engage players and clients at clubs and so forth. Um, what I came up with was a 28-day mental toughness challenge, all off-court activity. So that's what I've really been putting my time into. I know we've, we've done it at Soto, to yeah. uh, day 18, I think it is. And then I've released that again to uh, different clubs and players all sorts of all different levels and it's it's been going really well so uh, big focus there on things like um, developing attentional control or, or developing attentional strength through mindfulness activities visualizations just different reflections match reflections and so forth um, a, as well as using different activities to try to develop what I call emotional fitness, like better responding to the difficult thoughts and feelings that show up as we compete. Obviously in these circumstances, it's actually a good opportunity for us to use the challenges, I guess that these circumstances are presenting to develop the same sort of skills that we're going to need on court as well. So um, yeah, so it's been an interesting, uh, interesting time to, try to put together those sort of things that in a way that can be engaging for players to do this stuff off court.
1: And, and I can say, you yeah, yeah. know, first hand, that it, it, it has been fantastic. You know, John, yeah, over, over to you.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, it's probably a, a really, really great time for players to be able to engage in the mental court or a tennis, you know, usually very, very engaged with, you know, the physical, the tactical part of things, that, you know, and the tech the technical part. Um so this is probably in, in the times that we're in now is is an amazing opportunity for players to really have a bigger focus on this area. Um and I'm really looking forward to getting an insight of that today as well um on how to train it and how and how players can do it. Yeah no
1: definitely and, and Anthony we'll get we'll get to that definitely we'll get to that later i suppose my relationship with you is is in line with that you know that's the bit that i know a lot about you of <laughs> you know i know that you're you're a world-class sports psychologist you know you've got you know certainly you've certainly made massive differences at Soto tennis academy with with your work and we and we love working closely with you but what i what i'd love to understand today and i know i think it'll be really nice for the listeners to understand There, is, there is lots of different buckets of, of life that you can go into through through the vehicle of tennis you know and you know to have that's been one of the great things that we've had on the podcast having different people going into different avenues so I'd like to almost I'd like to hear your story today really you know how how did it start obviously you, you started as a tennis player so I, I guess go back to the the early 80s, as you were, you were starting your tennis, how, how did this whole tennis thing start for you? Yeah, it's been a great journey, I would say, a great life
2: journey. So I grew up in a little town called Biloela, it's an outback Australian town with about 5,000 people. Uh, it was a town where we played, basically sport was the centerpiece of, of, of everything, and we just played all sorts of sports started playing tennis. We actually didn't have a tennis coach in the town, uh, but we'd hit a lot of balls and and uh, play with my older brother. And I, over time, I just found that I loved tennis the most out of all the sports. And so, um, and at that time, we actually, I was lucky enough that, that a coach from a uh, nearby town started to come once a week to the town. And so I started to get more and more um, interested in tennis. And then another lucky thing for me was that in a, in a a slightly bigger town about an hour away, there was a coach called Gary Gary Stickler. And Gary ended up coming to Brisbane, which is the capital of Queensland, where I live now, to become like the state tennis director a couple of years later. And he decided that he wanted to give the opportunity to kids who lived in the country that otherwise wouldn't have a chance to be able to come down stay at his house and, and play tournaments and so forth. So I, from the, about the age of 13, I started traveling down to the city so Gary, in fact, like he's an incredible coach. So he was a great influence on my early playing days. He ended up um, like he, I would argue, was the most responsible for Pat Rafter becoming number one. So he worked with Rafter from when he was like two or 300 to, to when he got to number one and when he was number one. Um, yeah. So Kane started coming down to Brisbane, loved it. Didn't have a lot of talent, I've got to say, but love the game, love working, working on improving and, I just chipped away to the point where you know, I might have been uh, you know, 10 in my state for, for my age. And then um, as the years went by, I slowly improved. And um, by the time I finished high school, um, at that point, you didn't have to go to college straight out of school. So I decided to play for a year and got the chance to travel around and, and, um, and play some, some futures and, and what were satellites at that time. But then um, another lucky thing happened for me was I had had some contact with a sports psychologist. You might know Alan Fox in the States, the name Alan Fox. I do
0: know but, the name.
2: Yeah. yeah, so Alan Fox is a very famous uh, sports psych um, and tennis coach from the US. His brother lived in Australia, who I knew. And, so, and Alan was the coach of Pepperdine um, at the time. And so that's how I ended up getting a scholarship to go to Pepperdine. Yep. And uh, and and went to college at the start of '97. Um, yeah, so then went to college, and my first semester was less than successful. Probably didn't take it as seriously as uh, you got a bit carried away with college life. I've got to say, um, Pepperdine in Malibu, um, and the, <laughs> it was it was a bit hard to concentrate to be honest. But um, but what happened was. So I was there for a semester, and at the end of the semester, uh, the coach re- uh, retired, and Peter Smith, who ended up going to USC and being very successful at USC, became the head coach. He came in, and due to me not doing very well that, that first semester, basically told me I, I was not going to be on the team and I should go somewhere else. And I, by that stage, I loved it there and um, just you know, loved being in college, loved, loved Pepperdine. And so I couldn't afford to come back based on the scholarship that, that he offered. But what I ended up working out, I went home for a semester and then I came back in January again. I was able then to um, to then make it affordable for that semester. Um, and that really kicked me into gear. I came home and that actually at that time I did a lot of work with Michael Fox, the psychologist who I knew originally. Um, and, and that was very helpful and... Um, uh, and when I came back I was pretty very committed and even that period I think that was a you know just a huge help to see the difference from my own experience of how much of a difference could the, the psychology of the game could make and and becoming more effective as a competitor and so then then I, I uh, did well that next semester enough to earn a scholarship to be able to stay for the, for the last couple of years and um, and throughout those those three years, yeah, I'm pretty pretty proud of the competitor I became. And um, you know, won I think it was like between eighty five and ninety percent of my matches um, throughout the last three years. And and um, did particularly well in doubles. Um, yeah, and just had an incredible time in college. I mean, that's just just a magical experience. I've got to say. So. Yeah,
1: no, it is, and I mean. It's, we were, we were in college at the same time, you know? Yes. uh, So I I start, I was 98, 2002. I mean, I've I've always, always knew your name, but I I don't know if we ever actually physically came across each other. I Um, don't remember
2: playing LSU. I don't remember
1: playing LSU. I I don't think we did. I think in 98, 98, we made the final four, actually. Was it that 98 or 99? Um to, then we, we were sweet 16 probably the next couple of years. Um, yeah. But obviously we always saw Pepperdine <clears throat> around. But it's funny how this tennis world works. You know, it's all, it's all connected. And, you know, just before there, I know you, yourself and John were talking about Peter Clark as well. You know, yeah. how you, know, you and John haven't met, but instantly there's that connection. And I think a lot of people don't quite realize how amazing tennis is with that.
0: Yeah, so like as as soon as I um heard heard your accent, Anthony, obviously I knew you were from Australia, but it just it took me straight back to Clarkie. And um, like I say, just uh, before when we came on, Peter Clark was playing Davis Cup at Ireland for a good couple of years. And as I was growing up as a youngster, he was a he, he was a great influence on me. He was such a hard worker and um an intense guy, great guy to be around. So he, he, as soon as I listened to you, I, it immediately took me back to those those
2: years yeah and yeah i know uh clarky Clarkey, really really well um after i finished college i was lucky enough to play for a few years and 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 play doubles on the tour and um and and towards the, the end of my playing career i was actually started coaching at the same time so so peter was playing singles and and uh, so I was playing doubles at the same tournaments as he was playing singles at and actually coaching. It was my first coaching experience was coaching uh, clarky on the tour. So it was a, an interesting and challenging Amazing. experience. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Just one thing that did I picked up on there when you were talking, and I think this certainly links into, I know, the work that you do, you know, in terms of kind of influent, influential others, you know, how, how and you, and you and you talked about how your first coach in your area happened to be a fantastic coach, you know, who, who probably set the set the the boundaries and set a lot of the foundations for you. How much of it is luck in, in this, in the tennis world that, that somebody does happen to meet somebody that can have that influence on an individual at the start. Do you think? I think it's absolutely
2: massive. The, the I think the combination of parental influence is is massive, um, yeah. but then when it comes to to coaches and uh, as John was saying, just influences in terms of you who you're playing with and and so forth is is absolutely massive. I know in my in my case where I lived and the and it was you know a weird thing actually to to get into tennis because. Um, Rugby league and cricket and so forth, where I live, were the, the dominant sports. So, if it wasn't for my very first coach coming to town, I mean, I would not have even been playing yeah. for sure. And then, yes, to have to have uh, Gary Stickler set up this opportunity for a kid in where I live to get to go and play bigger tournaments and stuff, and was, I mean, if it wasn't for those two guys, I absolutely would not have been playing. <laughs> Tennis seriously, let alone um, ending up getting the chance to have the life I've lived through tennis.
1: And and I think on that, I, I listened to a podcast the other day with Magnus Norman actually, and and it was obviously Magnus Norman is known for coaching Varenka, being at the very top of the game, you know, and yeah. he and he talked very candidly about about what how important those those coaches are the younger ages one from a developmental point of view but I would even add an extra layer of that we maybe don't I think in the tennis world we do but I don't think people those coaches at that early stage get the value are valued as much as they they should be because if I talk about my experience it's the same you know if you talk about pretty much every single player that you would talk to they will pinpoint a coach who who was able to set, set those foundations very early, whether it's the love of the sport, you know, you know, setting, you know, all of those values from a very early age. And I think as a tennis community, it, it is important that we continue to. Record. Sorry, no,
0: I totally agree with both of you. As, as, as you're just talking, I mean, it brings me back as well. And um, growing up, we, we had two great guys in our home club, and um, that you know created a, an amazing environment for kids to play and to flourish to love the game and it was definitely certainly uh, I was very very lucky to be in uh, where I was living uh, that the tennis club wasn't too far away but like yourself Anthony our our, our town is in Dundalk where I live in Ireland is very much a a soccer town a GAA town uh, Gaelic football similar to the Aussie rules um but it certainly wasn't a big tennis town, um, but I was lucky enough to be around two great guys that were running our local tennis club, and that gave me an amazing love for the sport, and that's why I'm here today as well. Great to be on with you guys.
1: And, and Anthony, so after you, you've had a great college career, you've, you, or you, you've resurrected a great college career, which is fantastic. Then, then what happened? Did you, you went on the pro tour after college? Yeah, so I
2: spent three years playing after college, and just purely doubles. Um, So I was no hope in singles, Um, but but yeah, and had once again an an incredible experience just traveling the world uh, for those three years, and got to uh, yeah about one hundred and thirty in the world, and um, just just it was different, very different from from college. Uh, in some respects a lot more challenging, especially at those the levels of, you know, that you're scraping by trying to, trying to get by financially. Um, but yeah, just incredible experiences traveling with, you know, meet the best friends of your life, um, incredible relationships and, um, and, and the experience of being able to compete and do what you love and, and travel the world. Just uh, absolutely incredible. Uh, but I, I sort of, after, after about three years, I got to that point where I thought I was as good as I could be really and it wasn't going to be sustainable. I didn't certainly want to be um, you know, five years later in the same position with, yep. you know, um, uh, where I still didn't have any money and, and, and yep. so forth. So I started thinking about um, options after, after that and that's where I started to integrate um, some coaching and just starting to work with some players, you know, I yeah I, uh, um, yeah love that part of it as well. So I, I think it was two thousand three, two thousand three. I ended up played Wimbledon doubles qualies, got played main draw mix, but then I was also co- coaching Clarkie in the qualies of right. the singles. So I was playing and coaching at at um, at that one Wimbledon, same that sort of time. Like then the next next U.S. Open, um, you know, I was coaching Peter as well, and um, yeah, and then I sort of just. Sort of slid into coaching from there. I coached him, and then another player who was very, very talented as well. It was about three or four got to about three or four hundred in the world, but it, but I would say the same in the same boat as Clarky. In the end, probably a, a quite a big underachiever in terms of not fulfilling their physical and and uh, and, and technical abilities due to um, a lack of competitive effectiveness, and that that really was a um, had a, a, a big influence on me because I just didn't have the skills to to deal with that. And um, from a coaching perspective, that was, it, it just made me think, you know, I need to go and develop my skill in helping players compete more effectively at that point, just, just to become yes. a better coach. Um, and yeah, so that was, that was the, the sort of journey from playing to coaching and starting to get a real particular interest in the competitive aspects of, Coaching and the, the the psychology of coaching,
1: I guess. And I think on that one, and, and I know you don't you don't say this, Anthony, and, and and we'll get to that. And I'll I'll certainly let you. It would be great for you to give your philosophy on this. But I know in tennis, a lot of people say, "Oh, the game's eighty percent mental. It's eighty percent mental," and and we hear that from a lot of coaches. Yet they don't search that information and search that understanding you know it's quite a I think it's quite an interesting one actually you know and it's I, I certainly was guilty of it as a young coach as well where you know player oh God, I can't help them they're just they're just nuts you know they they, they, they can't their minds all over the place or, or, or whatever it might be but rather than me then going to try and find the solutions it was almost just an easy an easy out for me as a coach to say well, it's not my fault. It's, it's their fault because they're nuts, <laughs> and they need to they need to take care of their mind. So, yeah, what's what's your take? What's your take on that? When you hear people saying about eighty percent, it's eighty percent mental and, and that side of things.
2: Yeah, I think um, I think that the way I think about it is I just really categorise the four components as pretty much equally important, right? I think uh, you know I would say if you if you had to put a number on it, I would say that success in tennis would be 25% mental and but because you need the physical skills right you need the technical skills and you need the tactical skills you need them all and I think the important thing that I've learned over time is that you need to have the combination of all of them because they, they all rely on each other to a degree so you, you could have the three components of, of either of the, the four components, but if you are not good physically, if you're not good technically, if you're not good mentally, then those components become, to a degree, worthless. And, um, and so I think the working effectively on all four parts of the game is, is a crucial thing. And, and if you, from a mental point of view, for players who uh, are poor mentally, then they can be as physically good as as anyone, technically good, good as anyone. But if they cannot take those skills and apply them in matches, then it's it's no use, is it? So,
1: um, yeah. So how was you, So you you how long were you a tennis coach for them? I, mean, I guess coming. Yeah, under the I'm trying.
2: So I did psychology as as a minor in college at Pepperdine, and okay. so I finished playing. I was coaching 2003. I finished finally in 2004 and then I, I really coached for the next probably three or four years. And during that time I started finishing my psychology degree uh, back in Australia. So I was doing that externally while I was still coaching. So I, um, yeah, I coached, coach Peter and, and then I coached another player, Andrew Dara. Um, and then I was doing a mix of coaching. So I did all sorts of different coaching. When I can I ended up moving back to Brisbane where I live now and started just, building like a small coaching business, doing, um, doing bits and pieces of everything. I um, did a, a few Australian summers um, and, um, um, yeah, work with, work with some pros over the Australian summers during, during the Aussie Open and so forth. And then from about, oh, I want to say like 2007, something like that, I, that's when I started shifting into psychology. I became a conditionally registered psych. And then I have got my first gig with Tennis Australia at the, they were just building the new national academies, and so I became the first um, psychologist at the Brisbane Academy, um, and that's when I started really shifting completely into into psych. Um, not at that point, not just in tennis. I was doing uh, general sports psychology, and I was I was doing some general psych as well um, yep. for a couple of years. So, so which was good because it just gave me a huge range of different experiences. Um, um, from you know, met, dealing with and and working with many people in many different facets of life as well. So yeah, it was pretty cool. And
1: and in terms of in terms of the illness that you had, when what year did that happen? Oh, so that wasn't until
2: two thousand fifteen. So towards the end of two thousand fifteen, yeah. Um,
1: yeah. And and can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, so I was. Um, at that point, I was uh, just, yeah, doing lots of spef- specifically focusing on tennis psychology. Um, yeah, so, so really busy with that. And um, actually, I'd been in the States for a couple of months working with um, Virginia Tech, uh, men's tennis. So good friends with Stephen <laughs> Huss, who you may remember, yeah. And yeah. so Hussey was the assistant. So I ended up doing quite a bit with Virginia Tech during that, that season and spent some time over there. Um, and we actually we we were doing some running uh, in one of the forests there, and so potentially what what started things for me is I I was likely infected with Lyme in the in the forests of um, Virginia, and then that was mid year in 2015. I came back and and it was towards the end of 2015. Um, the first thing I remember was I was running with my my now wife, and we would go for runs, and I would usually you know, slow down for her to to make her you know, feel good about her, her running. And this one day I couldn't keep up with her and she thought this was sort of pretty, pretty great. She was like, Oh, you know, you can't keep up with me. But, um, I, uh, it was a bit strange. And then literally like three or four days later, I was about getting up and I was supposed to go and do a tennis session and I just couldn't walk across to the other side of the room. Um, and like by the end of the day I was in hospital and over the next few months, um, I was sort of in and out of hospital. Couldn't I, I, if I you know, rested enough, I could could walk, but I was mainly in a wheelchair. Um, and I thought I'd recovered quite well, but um, I was still not a hundred percent. And we went away for a holiday, and I went surfing. I'm a keen surfer, and I went went surfing, and it was a bit rough. And and I came out, and I was. It sort of really sent me into a spiral of, um, of downhill. So that they, uh, it's most likely that. Um, Stanford researchers have have researched a lot uh, about twenty people who had like very similar symptoms to me, and their hypothesis, I guess, it's, it's still not proven, is what they call a metabolic trap. It's like a if a genetic mutation, which is quite common, and they think that if if that comes in combination with enough uh, body stresses, like a bad infection or or something similar, it can set off this metabolic process, which is basically my understanding is that your body just at a catastrophic level stops metabolizing food and so for me likely what happened sort of a domino effect where your body uh, goes into like a starvation response because it's not getting the, the nutrients that it needs and that um, it starts a, a muscle atrophy where you, your muscles uh, go into this atrophied state that you become so weak like weak weakness on a level that is hard to imagine um so for me i you couldn't stand i was in a wheelchair and then uh, um, if i did too much like even at very very small levels it would just make things worse and worse so i got in got to a point where um uh, i couldn't i couldn't stand i was in bed like i couldn't couldn't sit up and actually my diaphragm became so weak that i couldn't talk so i couldn't talk for um at one stage something like 500 days in a row i was completely in bed couldn't talk could only communicate via text um and that it has other effects on your body as well so that you have the weakness but it's the it it has the autonomic nervous system as i now know just regulates all our uh, automatic body processes and so examples of what happened for me was that i my body lost the ability to pump blood against gravity So even sitting up for me, I would pass out if I tried to sit up in bed or um, temperature control. So I couldn't, I lost the ability to sweat. So I couldn't, I had to be in like the perfect 25 degrees Celsius temperature. Otherwise I would start having like these seizure responses and, and so forth. So it was sort of a combination of of muscle atrophy, uh, this autonomic nervous system failure, I guess, and then. And then this, this this response. If you imagine that, um, I, I, it's hard to explain how little energy you have. But if you, you imagine that you've got one hundredth of the usual amount of energy you would have, and if you use any more than that, your body goes into this what they call crashes. And when you get in these crashes, it's like it's like it's like I guess the easiest way to think about it is the worst sickness you've ever had. Um, and you just can't digest food. You can't do anything. You're just in a, in a world of hurt. So it was sort of, yeah, for me, it was, um, uh, yeah, it, it's hard to describe what it was like. But if you imagine being, having to be in, in no choice, just having to lie in the same position for 18 months in a row and not be able to talk. And, and basically, um, uh, it was, yeah, brutal. <laughs> brutal, I guess, is the word.
1: Yeah. So lock, uh, lockdown, lockdown's a piece of cake for you?
2: Well, that's, that's the thing. I've been... A lot of people have said, why don't you do stuff on, on lockdown? Because for me, for a long time, you know, it was like a dream to be able to talk again, you know, or a dream to be able to certainly stand up or get to other areas of the house. Like, that would have been... That was... It is like a dream. So I've still got the leftovers of that. Um, uh, you know, now I've been feeling, feeling great again for it took it was like an 18 month process where I slowly, but surely started improving. And, um, uh, for the last 12 months, I've, I felt great, but I still, you know, have the appreciation which you develop of being the simplest things of being able to talk or be able to get around the apartment. So, so, um, yeah, it's a strange, it's a strange thing where it's, it, it does still feel for me like, uh, I feel still lucky to be able to do the simplest of things, you know. So um, it, it, it's a weird thing thinking about being in lockdown, um, but but feeling lucky to be able to do, even do these things, yeah.
1: And gratitude when it comes to yeah. when it the, the psychology is, is obviously so is so important, you and know. What right? I, how how much I guess my, I have two que- I have lots of questions around it, but the, the two questions that jumped to my mind is one, how scared were you and how, you know, how, how was that? And two, how did you deal with it mentally? Because obviously you've still got your internal thoughts going on and feelings going on. So how did you deal with that? And do you think the fact that you had so much information on how the mind works had helped you or, or maybe even deterred you at that time?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, looking back the some of the early months i guess when you don't know what's going on the doctors don't know what's happening and the 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 sheer when you have these crash experiences i mean it just feels like you're dying and you get so weak and i remember being in hospital where the, the doctors would try to get me to stand to do like certain tests but i knew that every time i had to stand i was getting weaker and weaker to the point where Um, In the early days, I just assumed I was dying. So you go, I just remember being terrified (laughs) and um, being incredibly anxious, but getting, getting to the point where you are so weak and you're so um, at at a level where that anxiety sort of goes. So I I also remember being, you know, lying in bed, just assuming I was about to die. Um, And so uh, yeah, that was, I mean, the, 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 I've had the gamut of full emotions that you could imagine, obviously, you know, different times when, as I moved along and I, I learned that, you know, I was, um, uh, you sort of developed coping and, the, and you move in this direction of being more accepting of the situation and so forth, but you still, you know, the frustrations of not being able to do what you wanted. So, I guess yeah the the idea of the the emotions that you you go through were the most intense emotions of of everything that you could imagine and yeah even that weird experience of getting to the point where you you as i said just lying there and going well i I think i'm about to die and it's not it's not an anxious think i'm there to die it's sort of a resignation that i'm just so weak i mean that must be what's happening um and so that was just like really weird a a weird experience it's a strange thing i sort of think i remember thinking um i I had dinner with um scott draper you might remember uh, a couple of weeks ago and he he had an an amazing story and he ended up writing his book called it was called too good and too good was about um when his wife uh very unfortunately passed away uh, from cystic fibrosis, I believe. And, and, and so some of the things he wrote about in the book with the whole experience of that. And this idea of too good. And I was having dinner with him the other night. And, and I remember it, that it was the strange thing that came to my mind when I was in that same place. And I, I sort of, I remember this idea of, oh, that was my sense. It was sort of like this too good. Like I've, I've done everything I can. And, and the other thing I remember thinking think, was like, it was a sense of pride, you know, like I was quite happy with the life that I lived and, um, and I was just like, okay, it's too good. If this is it, this is it. Um, so yeah, that was um, wow. some. some uh, wow. Uh, but then, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms, of, in terms of psychologically dealing with it, and you know, when, I, when I got through that, that period and I, over time, I thought um, uh, the, the idea of coping over time in that situation, I, and to answer your question about the, the role of tennis and so forth, I think it is massively important. Like just the things in, in tennis, like the discipline to go out and work at things day after day after day, you know, to, to get the smallest improvement. If you, it, and, and that was my, you know, part of my sense was um, I knew that over time, I knew that if I could like save energy at a, a massive level, like lie still, just lie still rather than rolling and so forth and this this sense of this discipline that I knew if I could do that, I might be slightly better tomorrow that that sense I think really was helpful in terms of that that 's what we do in tennis. We just go out to improve and we we 're willing to work at, at at things over and over to get tiny improvements um, and and oh, so there 's that sense like just the playing of tennis I think that 's one one lesson and one thing I think it is even more important and how vital tennis is in terms of the general skills that it develops, regardless if we're having a specific focus on the psychology of the game, just playing and competing. It teaches so many lessons that are going to be helpful through life challenges. Um, yeah, so there's that component, but then specifically, yes, I think the things that I've learned from a psychological point of view, the things I've worked on with others over the years, I absolutely applied that. Like I, um, yeah, I got to the point where I would spend hours every day because obviously you are just lying there in your thoughts. I'd, I'd spend hours every day doing mindfulness, doing me- different meditations, gratefulness, um, all, all sorts of things. I got, you know, right into, um, yeah, like loving kindness meditations where you're trying to imagine and, and, and uh, you know, kindness on others partially because of the health benefits that, you know, I did a lot of research, obviously, that's one thing I could do. And I researched a lot of, about the health benefits of the different um, things we do. So I used a lot of that. I did a lot of visualising. So I visualise um, myself being healthy again, for example, um, and and imagine myself doing that. Uh, one One thing that was like surprising, which was very comforting, I think during that time was one of the most comforting things I could think of when I was in that situation was I'd, I'd often remember back to when I was a kid playing tennis. So all the different tennis centers I played tournaments at and imagine walking in because it was such a great, it was, it was such a great, um, great memories for me. And, and same as at like college, being at college, imagining being back on the, in the courts and so forth. So yeah, that, that sort of stuff. I did a lot of, a lot of that um, during those times. Um, yeah. So in, in short, I would say it was all my experiences in tennis and also the psychological parts of my work and what I've done absolutely you know, applied it a lot during that time.
1: And, you, and, and as, a, as a practitioner, do you think it's helped you? Do you think you're able to help people more because of the experience you've had? Or I guess one of the thoughts that comes into my head, I would imagine me personally... I would almost carry some more frustrations towards people that are being a bit spoilt, <laughs> you. you know. In in some ways, you know, so yeah. it could have you know, that detrimental effect. How's how's that? How do you how do you think that's been on on how you you are as a practitioner?
2: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question, and I think you're right. I think that there's both elements of it. I, one thing I think that was is beneficial is the ability to really listen. So during that time, when you don't have the ability to talk, all I did was listen or communicate via text. Um, and so sometimes now I joke with my my wife about the yeah, the, the listening skills, and she, she actually she she sometimes now wishes I could go back where I wasn't able to talk again. But um, but the the um, yeah. So I think that that's one thing I think of. I think the ability to like truly listen and and be a better listener, I think was a helpful thing. But I think it is true that uh, in, in you saying the, um, the idea of that sort of harden up. <laughs> it's like when people are, you know, perhaps not being as tough as you'd like them to be or respond as well as you'd like them to be, then
1: um, yeah, there's that side of things as well, for sure. So moving into the, when, when did Mentally Tough Tennis start? So it actually, yeah, it started in, I want to say
2: about 2012. And the, the story there actually is that I was uh, working as a psychologist and uh, I was working actually at the Brisbane International Tennis Tournament. And I, as we mentioned before, Peter Clark, um, I'd coached Clarkie for uh, a little while and, and probably less than successfully. As I said, I, I was um, probably didn't end as well as possible with, with Clarkie. And then and it was 2012 and, and I saw Clarkie actually just came up to the fence. I hadn't seen him for several years and we said, let's catch up for a drink. And um, and so we, we had a drink and I started talking about what I've been doing in terms of the psych stuff and what I thought I'd learn. I think that was a big part of our discussion was what I thought I'd learn and sort of chatting to him about what I how I thought I could probably have been more helpful to him if I knew at the time what I'd learn over the years. And he was really, you know, sort of excited about it. He actually drove it. He sort of said, you know, we've got to try to get this information out here and he had a real passion for the game and so forth. So we um, decided to work together to develop Mentally Tough tennis. So that was, yeah, I want to say 2012.
1: And in terms of the, can you, obviously, I know it. I know it I know it really well because it's, it's something for those listening. You know, we've been working at Soto Tennis Academy with Anthony for a couple of years. I think, Anthony, actually, I possibly, it was Hussy that maybe... it was I the think first, so. You know, I, I bumped into him at Orange Bowl uh, back in maybe 2013, uh, 14, maybe. And and he was talking to me about, about yourself coming over. And he was talking about the concepts and, you know, which I loved. And then that's when I think I started to really follow your work and start to... Start to really get my teeth into it a little bit more, and then obviously we connected a couple of years ago so so for those listening and, and also for john actually i don 't know how 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 much you know john can you can you explain the concept and the model that you use at the at, with mentally tough tennis
2: yeah um, so it's a very the, my philosophy is uh, guided very much with what's called acceptance and commitment therapy, which was a first uh uh, a general psychology uh, model, I guess, and then it's just shifted more and more into sport. It's 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 very mindfulness based, actually, um, and so your know, mindfulness is a big part of this acceptance and commitment therapy. But um, I don't. Know, would you like me to to explain the bus story? Definitely.
0: Well, a, yeah. yeah.
2: So that the the, the 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 best way I find to help players um, and people understand. What I would see is the four key components of competing effectively is through this idea of a bus story and thinking about what, what does a bus driver need to do to drive well? And then we can use the bus story to, to put ourselves in a situation. So, so the idea of the bus story, what's, what's the bus driver got to do to drive well? They've got to be connected with, they've got to know where they're driving, where they've got to drive and why it's important for them to drive well. And so we might call that their purpose, so connecting with the purpose. The second thing is they've got to obviously be able to aim and maintain their attention in a, in a helpful place like the road in front of them. So this second idea is, is attentional control, having good control over where they place their attention. The third key component for driving the bus well is to obviously commit to the actions of steering and braking appropriately. And then the fourth uh, component is for a bus driver is they pick up passengers along the way and sometimes there's helpful passengers or good passengers come on sometimes they're more difficult passengers and, and and the difficult passengers make it difficult right they say difficult stuff from the back of the bus and so the bus driver to drive well has got to respond well to the difficult passengers and so these are the the four key components that uh, a bus driver's got to drive well and so then when we think about this in terms of tennis it's like we're the bus driver and we need to do these same four key components or another way to look at it is when we aren't competing well or when we're watching a player not compete well it will always be caused by one or more of these four components and so that is this idea that if we look at then if a player's not competing well then it could be that they're not they're not connected with the purpose or the, it's a motivational issue, right? They're not connected with the goals or what they're trying to achieve or the values or the purpose of why it's important for them to take certain actions. The second cause of not competing well could be that they've lost concentration, as simple as that, right? It's a diffi- we have a wandering mind and it's a difficult thing to aim and maintain our attention in one place. And so that in itself is a, is a skill, a simple skill, uh, but a vital skill to work on. The third one is that they may not be committed to the helpful processes that increase the chance of success. So these are the, you know, the basics of as coaches that we, we talk about with players, you know, game style, strategy, cues, whatever we think it's helpful uh, to do that increases the chance of success. Uh, a player may not be committed to, to uh, those processes. That could stop them competing well. And then the fourth one here, when we think of the bus story, the passengers on the bus represent our unintentional thoughts and feelings that show up as we compete. So nerves, frustration, the difficult passengers are nerves, frustration, helplessness, and so forth. And 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 the two things that can cause a player to, to not compete well, to do with their, their own thoughts and feelings, the unintentional thoughts and feelings, is that, as humans we tend to act based on the difficult thoughts and feelings so if i'm feeling nervous i tend to act nervous if i'm feeling frustrated i tend to act frustrated um, and so that's one part of the challenge with these with our difficult internal experiences but the second part is that we don't like having them so often we start to develop habits which are actually about trying to reduce the, the difficult feelings without, uh, without realizing it so from the bus story perspective it's sort of like instead of sitting in the front of the bus and driving the bus and committing to helpful actions, our behaviors become about trying to get rid of the difficult passengers off the bus. Um, and so in, in total, in my experience, in my belief now, the a massive part of what I do, I work on, on improving these four parts, but this idea of responding better to our internal experiences is a massively important part. I, when we talk about the importance of what makes a good tennis player, I would now argue that the most important skill of all that determines how good players become is, is how well they can respond to difficult internal experiences, nerves, frustrations, outcome thoughts, um, yeah, thoughts about how well or poorly they're executing their skills and so forth.
1: And and I think on that, Anthony, one thing I I've learned unbelievable amount from you over the last couple of years, which I thank you for, and I'm going to keep trying to pick your brains over the next over the next couple, at least. Um, the the big thing that's always resonated with me, and and I think even to this day when I'm working with players, it's something that we kind of constantly need to work on. Is is this work is not going to stop you having negative thoughts and feelings you know and and I think when we talk about a mentally tough athlete or mentally tough person I think sometimes there is this misconception that if you're mentally tough it means you're not actually dealing with any negative thoughts and feelings and you're just positive all the time and you just have and, and that the concept of actually everybody is and if we listen carefully and I know you do it well and we're going to do it in a minute when you listen to your Federer's, your Andrescu's, your, your, you know, these players in in their after-match interviews, they are always commenting that they are experiencing difficult thoughts and feelings. But their their ability to still bring themselves back to the present and be, and be able to compete and, and commit to their actions is is massive. And that's something that I turned 40 a couple of weeks ago at 35 years old, that was something I didn't know, you know. So, you know, that was, you know, so how many, how many 13, 14, 12, how many parents, how many coaches around the world that that don't fully understand that? And just, I used to have a big, and if my dad's listening to this, um, I hope he feels a little bit bad about it. There's not many things I would say bad about it, but I remember watching Murat Safin, who was my age, and and it was it was exciting because, you know, I'd beaten Safin and, you know, we'd kind of grown up in the in the juniors together. And a age eighteen he was he was live on the on the T V, you know, be, coming through and beating the top ten player in the world. But he was he was smashing rackets. And I remember my dad saying, Oh, t- I just don't know why you can't. He, he just needs to control that. Or, you know, it's ridiculous acting like that. He needs to control it. And that was very much, and I don't blame my dad for this, but that was very much the message that was given to me all my career. Control, control your emotions. Just control them. Just control them. And 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 I remember always having quite a strong thought. I can't. I want to, but I can't. And then and then I felt. I, I suppose do a bit if you do your sports psychology thing on me here as a junior because I I wanted to do it but I couldn't and then what happened what used to happen with me because I was a pretty conscientious lad I then got really felt really guilty with myself that I'd allowed myself to to have some form of bad behavior or, you know, I hadn't kept. So, so then actually I, I was then in a place where I felt really down and really down in the dumps. And I, and I really struggled with that. If you're working with me as a junior, how, how are you going to help me? Cause I think that's quite common.
2: Yeah. Well, I think the, the basic thing that we're talking about, and I was the same, and certainly I would say still, you know, sports psychology uh, as a field is probably not doing as good a job as we can in terms of normalising and communicating the, the, how normal it is to have difficult internal experiences as we compete. And I think the other thing is that we've, um, uh, is it generally speaking, we overestimate how, how much control we think we should have over our emotions. When in reality, as you're talking about as humans, when we're competing, if I am if I go out to compete and I wanna win really badly and I'm competitive, of course, I'm going to feel nervous about the possibility of losing. Of course, I'm gonna feel frustration if I'm not uh, playing as well as I want, not meeting my expectations. Of course, if I was playing Rafael Nadal on clay, I'm going to feel helplessness and I'm going to have thoughts saying, there's nothing you can do and so forth. And so in your situation, the first thing I'd say, and this is a very helpful thing to do with all players, is to help you understand that those experiences are normal and that um, and that I would in fact argue that the that it's it's not normal to be able to control emotions in tennis. Um, and so that your experience is a very common one, right? Where where players experience the normal difficult emotions. But then they judge themselves for having the difficult emotions and not being able to control them. And then they end up with having more difficult emotions, sort of a spiralling up of more difficult emotions um, based on the judgment that they should be able to control the emotions. And so get more acceptance rather than the goal being to control the emotions, I'd be working on you to try to get more acceptance uh, of having those emotions and really difficult emotions. And, and skill you to learn to respond better to those emotions without trying without having to get rid of them to take the actions that are going to be helpful uh, for you
0: yeah it's uh, it's uh, great listening, uh, getting the insight on this. I remember as a kid as well growing up I think you know before every match, and even today you know I don't play as much competitive tennis as, as I did when I was uh, when I was a kid but uh, I I would always get those anxious kind of feelings, you know, going in before a match or whatever it may be. But I remember a coach uh, saying to me uh, before one of the matches going out and said, "Listen, it, it's absolutely brilliant that you you feel nervous. It's an that's absolutely brilliant you feel nervous." I was like, "What What do you mean?" And well, it shows you care. That's the first thing. Yeah. It shows you really really care. And um, and that all has that, that stuck with me in my, in, in, in my head before I went out. And obviously after that, it's about managing, like you're, like you're talking about now, but managing those nerves, managing that anxiousness um, that we all feel to some extent uh, before we go out and uh, we go to war or go to compete. Because, you know, and the other analogy of, you know, tennis is like, you know, the gladiators, but just without the blood. Uh, and it does feel like that sometimes before you you, you go out onto the court, but so yeah, fully relate with this for sure.
1: Can we do one one little thing? A little game that I'd like to do, John. You're gonna you're gonna pick two or three players, and Anthony's gonna help them in 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 ninety seconds. He's got ninety seconds, so you. You pick any players that you want you know, if, if, you know give Anthony a little bit of information on the player obviously it, let's use professional players that people know and then Anthony's got 90 seconds to help them get mentally tougher Go, cool. who's your first player the ultimate challenge
0: <laughs> this is going to be very tough now I'm going to start off with a very difficult one for you you ready I'm ready mm. Novak Djokovic.
2: Djokovic. Well, I would start by saying I would, I would. I think that he's now at the point where he is one of like a mental giant, um, and you, you, when you look at how well he competes and how he, how he finds the finish line, um, you're one of the all time great mental mental competitors. Um, I think he still uh, has some challenges around this idea of the stresses of competition. Uh, So if we take the Australian Open final, for example, um, we sort of lost the plot for a while during that final and he even talked about after the match, the idea that he thought that even his physical reactions, but certainly the way that he got really agitated throughout the match and and lost his way was related to not dealing with the stresses of the match. So um, he talks about how much he works on mindfulness and, and so forth, but I would just say, Keep working on the ability to increase your fitness in being able to tolerate the stresses and the fears that come with competition, without having to go to agitation, anger, and so forth to reduce those stresses. So keep working on developing your emotional fitness in being able to deal with the core emotions that come up as part of competing. But really, I mean, you're talking about a guy who's who's an absolute um yeah, at this point of his career, mental, mental King. If we talked about Djokovic at the start of his career, I think that would be, a, uh, I think the work that he's done mentally throughout his career has been massively important because he struggled mentally early on. He struggled to deal with the stresses and he had a lot of habits that were likely to do with the inability to deal with the stress and the fear of losing around even, even some of the injury stuff, he had a lot of defaults um, and so forth. So uh, he, he's done an incredible job throughout his career. And without, without working massively on his men, the mental parts of his game, he is an example of a player, I think, would mean nothing like the player he's become if he didn't make it a huge priority in his, in his um, career.
1: Just to jump in, what do you mean by defaults, Anthony?
2: Well, he just pulled out a lot of matches um, early on in his career. And there was things around, um, you know, injury. So sometimes we'll find with players... Um, it can become a bit of a habit to even feel that the, the, the physical, um, physical injury it potentially can be like emotionally related, related as well. Um, but things like tanking, giving up, um, which we see commonly, that can really develop through, uh, it's, it can be, can be a habit which actually serves to kick the fear of failure off the bus. So if I'm feeling really nervous, it hurts to lose. But if I don't try as hard, that fear gets reduced, right? And I don't feel as much pain when I lose if I haven't really been willing to put it on the line. And so that's a very common example of when players don't uh, don't try as hard as they can um, and tanking. That that would that's commonly a, a an unconscious habit where the player, if we think of the bus story, is actually getting in the back of the bus by not trying as hard to reduce the fear of failure that they're they're experiencing at that time.
1: It's such a, it's such an interesting concept, such an interesting concept. And it's one that even, even in the, in the house, obviously we've been, we've been in the house for a month, What I, what I massively notice with, with my kids, if there's something they don't want to face up to, well, it might be as simple as going to bed. It's bedtime. They they start to use a different emotion to hide that responsibility, taking that responsibility for that. So my my sons actually started using anger. You know, and he gets yeah. quite defensive and quite. And it's like I'm I'm, I'm just it's, you know you have to go to bed. But it's that's he's, that that's how he he is numbing the pain of having to deal with a situation that he doesn't want to want to deal with. It's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, it's,
2: I mean, we, do, we all do it, right? We all do it in areas of
1: our life where when we get, when
2: anything that brings up difficult internal experiences, it, it's our brain is always searching to reduce those. And so we often do things automatically without recognition that are actually about making us feel better. But unfortunately, making us feel better doesn't actually, in many circumstances, help us do better. And that's, that's what comes out on the tennis court as well. Players actually get into these habits, they 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 actually control their emotions very well at the cost. They control the fear. They reduce the fear at the cost of being willing to have the fear and commit to the actions that actually increase the chance of success. And that's, that's some, that's an, it's a concept that's not well understood by generally by coaches yeah. uh, and so forth. And it's a massive, it's a massively important thing for us to try to wrap our heads around and get clearer on what's going on when a player's, taking certain actions that aren't increasing the chance of success.
1: That's what I was saying. I remember Dave Sammel. Dave Sammel spoke to us as a a group when I was about 20 years ago now. And he sat us all down and we were, I guess, a pretty talented bunch of the other guys more so than myself. But, you know, it was was kind of the top top players who were, were doing pretty well in the UK at the time and he he talked to us about the worst feeling in the world to feel is regret and 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 i think you know how i've then connected the dots a little bit over my career and and things that i'm i'm learning from yourself anthony is is as tennis players, we do tend to to blame things. It's the LTA not funding. It's Tennis Australia not funding us. It's you know it's because I didn't get. I wasn't able to work with this coach. I didn't have the money to travel. How many people stop playing tennis just because they're not good enough? It's nearly always because they're they're injured or they you know they had a career threatening an injury or they were unable to you know actually owning up to the fact that you know what I gave my all. <laughs> came my all for three years and i wasn't quite good enough but but i'm comfortable with that but but what that what that blame does and i and and i've seen it happen with a lot of my friends and peer group is they then end up living a life of regret because they never actually faced up to it (laughs) you know so that the the numbing of the pain that you're talking about there you know if that is something that goes on through people's careers they are then the girl or guy that sits in the pub saying i could have been a tennis player if it wasn't for this 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 and this and and that's a that's the hardest pain in the world to deal with that that, that pain of regret
0: yeah and i, and, and I think you know and, and you you're touching on a lot of things here and I, uh, I suppose as a coach and as a player, when I was playing, I wasn't a great player by any means. But um, you know, I, I do feel when I was on a tennis court, I was around. I used to train a lot in bigger groups and with, with with a lot of guys. And I suppose one of the things that I would have always tried to bring when I brought you know, came to the course was a lot of energy. And um, uh, you know, try try our best when we're on the practice course as much as possible. And I suppose as a coach now one of the things that I do struggle with is when I look at things like that, players blaming other things that maybe certain situations aren't going their way. Um, they, you know, if things aren't going their way, they'll stop trying. They'll, you know, throw the toys out of the pram. I suppose I, I, as a coach, I certainly feel, and I still to this day, struggle a lot with that and having to, and how to deal with it. Because my psyche is that as tennis players, we should be so grateful to be on a tennis court. That It's, it's, it's an absolute privilege for us to be able to play tennis. Um, it's an absolute privilege for us to be able to go out and work and train and, and run around and basically, and I said this to Dan before the other day, to hit a ball over a, over a tennis net. And I, I genuinely have always felt that particularly when I, when I had the opportunity to go and play, you know, on the Futures Tour or play tennis and travel the world, I've always felt that this is a privilege uh, to be able to go out and to be able to do that. And I suppose the question that I'm asking you here is, is that, uh, from a coaching point of view, uh, what is the best way, I suppose, to be able to deal with players that are maybe don't feel that way, don't have that kind of psyche and almost like what Dan's saying there, that the world is on their shoulders almost.
2: Yeah, I think, I guess there's two perspectives we can take from, from that. First of all, from the purely coaching perspective is, uh, you know, as we all know, coaching similar to players playing tennis. We get the same experience as well. So when I'm talking about that general philosophy for players, I think it very much applies to us as coaches or, so I was trying to help players as well, the ideas of being able to recognise our own frustrations and our own fears and everything that comes with part of being a coach. And so the first thing there, from a very basic level, is the same ideas of trying to recognise and respond better to our own difficult internal experiences that show up as a coach. That's a worthwhile thing to practice um, as coaches, from from the sense of looking at players. Um, my i guess my one piece of advice to coaches is when we're thinking about behavior change with players one one thing i think i can say for sure is that we almost always underestimate how hard behavior change is and that we we typically ad, advise players and basically say you know just change right and and in a way we can think about Um, psychological change in the same way as how would we go about technically changing um, a, a tennis shot like from a brain perspective it's the same idea like we hear a lot about the idea we get to choose we should choose our attitude right but but it's very very hard to change attitude it takes a lot of work and effort in the same way it would take someone a lot of work to change their forehand technique if they've been playing for 15 years that's the same sort of process it takes to actually change attitudes and behavioural responses. So, so recognising the challenge for players to change behavioural habits and their attitude is is that is something that is very very important if we want to effectively help players. And that and the starting point for helping players to change behaviours and habits like tanking or anger or um, giving up or um, whatever it is, whatever the difficult. Attitude is is always helping them understand their own experience better. So for me, it's a I have a it's it's a very predictable pathway to effectively help a player get to that point of behavior change. And it's really four steps. The first is understanding. It's helping that player understand. Personally, I use the bus story, and I really try to help the player understand and and explore with the player what's going on here in terms of the bus story? Are you getting a difficult internal experience and then acting based on it? Have you <laughs> un- developed a habit, which is now about actually getting in the back of the bus and and you're kicking the, the, the fear or whatever it is off the bus? Is it a lack of concentration? Are you not connected enough to your purpose? And it's bringing these things together and working together to get an understanding of what's happening. So that's always the start. And then the next step is, try- then trying to help the player have more of an awareness of what's happening when it's happening. So if they can get to that point of understanding their behaviour better when they go out and play, I would actually not be asking or expecting they're going to change behaviour at the start. I would just want them to start to be able to report, oh, gee, I had more awareness. I noticed when I started getting frustrated. I noticed the urge to throw my racket. And even if they couldn't change their behaviour at all, that would be the next step. The third step is getting more acceptance. So more actual fitness doing things to help that player get fitter at being able to tolerate higher levels of difficult emotions, because, because unless they do that, it's just not possible to change. (laughs) It requires them to, to get fitter at being able to tolerate the the difficult experiences. And finally, once we go through those first three stages, the fourth stage is then the player actually starts to have the skill to change their behavior. Um, And so yeah, generally, from a coaching perspective, it's, we, we usually would jump to that expectation that they should just be able to change their behavior. But in reality, it really takes It's a very, very predictable path in nearly every scenario. When we, when we see a player, they're not competing well or they've got a poor attitude or whatever it is, you, you need to go through these four stages to actually help them.
1: Very good, Anthony. And, and, and I think as, as coaches, it's important and it's difficult, it's a challenge. But that we don't one that we don't judge the players, and, and two and two that we certainly don't compare them to ourselves, and that's, that's I think something as a coach that is very challenging to do because it's that well I find it easy, and and I always use the, the analogy of um, who's <clears throat> my, my big hero Alan Shearer, as a footballer, and then also Roy Keane, but they actually don't make good football managers. Neither of them have had any success, and I always think it is that expectation. They almost expect the players to be like them, and they're not. And and they haven't got to that first basic basic level of understanding, you know, and helping them the players understand why they are as they are. And I, and I think that's as, as tennis coaches. Because ultimately, we have to be the day-to-day sports psychologists, you know, and, and we, we have to have that really basic level understanding uh, as, as a starting point, which is not easy, which is not easy. Um, that was a long 90 seconds for Novak Djokovic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, sec- the, the next two have to be. I'm gonna, we're going to do two more. So they happen in 90 seconds. We're not allowed to go off on tangents. So the, the, the second one, John, who's your second one? Serena Williams.
2: Ooh, 90 seconds. <laughs> Once again, I would say, talking about Hussey, Dan, is, I remember having a discussion with Hussey where he said he thought that Serena was the, the mentally toughest player of all time. <laughs> Um, which I think for a large part of the career that you can make a strong argument for that. I think now the big challenge for her is that when she gets to the end of Grand Slam, she's feeling massive pressure. She's now had over the last couple of years, she's lost some big matches. So she will lack confidence going into those huge, huge matches because the, the memories will be getting triggered from big previous matches. And so along the same lines, I mean, her big challenge is going to be, dealing with and responding well to the huge amounts of pressure she seems like she's feeling around trying to get to that point of winning the most grand slams, I guess. Um, and also responding well to the perhaps lack of confidence that she now feels. She doesn't have that same aura when it comes to those huge matches because she, the other girls, I guess, you know, know that they can, can beat her. And so that combination of, of the stress and the pressure to do with winning the huge matches and and not being as confident in those big matches working at having great awareness around that and being able to get back to just committing to the helpful processes um, with those rather than I know Dan, we've talked about the the 2018 U S open final um, before. And I think that was perhaps an example where the stress and the predictions of probable loss to Osaka during that match got the better of her. And she started enacting behaviours that were designed to reduce the stress and um, and so forth, so that the, the the emotional fitness once again and working at responding uh, as well as possible to the to the pressures and the stresses of those big matches would be the main thing.
1: And the the one question I have on that, Anthony, I guess just from my curiosity, really, it, it, when, when I know we've talked a lot about this as well, and i i don't I don't put it as well. As I don't put it, but it's. The longer, the longer term areas of of, be, of work com- compared to the shorter term areas of work. So, so with Serena, is there a piece of work there along the line of of trying to add perspective and and almost lessen the importance of winning because it almost feels like even when you listen to her speak, she's she's only talking about how important it is and it's the 24th grand slam that she's trying to win so 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 then there's going to be much stronger passengers associated to it so then once she's in the moment yes her her mental fitness and her ability to tolerate those emotions is is vitally important but i guess maybe there's a piece of work there on on the on the bigger picture i don't know what you think on that
2: yes i definitely agree with that there's different ways that we can come at this to try to increase the chance that players will be in a better place to point by point, rock up to the next point and be willing to commit to a a helpful process. And there's that part that we are trying to work on with players recognising that they're going to be feeling difficult emotions and and have difficult uh, unintentional thoughts as they compete and purely responding to that. But from a coaching perspective over time, we do always want to be implicitly having conversations, communicating around helping them to, um, to develop a perspective that will, that will um, connect them with a purpose, I guess, that is, that's around other things than just winning itself. Right. So, you know, the ideas of, of helping players connect with the idea of improving, becoming a better player based on going out in the map. So, so one question I often ask, ask players or make a goal is to see if you can be a better player at the end of the match than you were at the start of the match. That's that's often a big focus and where the goal is to go out and work on the competitive skills, connect with other things of importance um, than, than the winning and so forth. Now, um, I certainly haven't been in any sort of situation that Serena's like in terms of that, that level of pressure on the, on the match and whatnot. But yes, I think over the long term, in the back of our minds, as coaches, we always want to try to be shaping our players' perspective so that they, you know, feel less pressure, feel a more balanced perspective of competing. But it's 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 a great challenge
1: in itself. Let's so so last one, Nick Kiriost. Uh, uh yeah, it would seem
2: from from the outside looking in that he's developed what we're talking about, like an unconscious uh, habit of reducing the stress of competition by uh, doing a lot of the things we've talk, talked about, like maybe not trying as hard. So, so um, anger, um, uh, excuse-making and so forth, and all these behaviours, uh, we often find at the core of them, they're about reducing the, the stresses and the fears that go with competing. So, so along the same lines, you know, a huge focus would be trying to help uh, both of the things that we're talking about, really trying to help Nick be more willing to have the, the fears and the frustrations that come with competing. So he's more able to put it on the line and compete hard and so forth. But I think he's, he's making really good strides, like at least on the, on the, uh, in terms of the Aussie open and the Aussie summer. And that was perhaps around connecting with a, a purpose bigger than winning and bigger than himself as well. So Perhaps both of those things. I know he's actually been working with since I think about September last year. He's been working working with a psychologist who was my one of my biggest mentors. He was my mentor, my main mentor throughout the um, uh, throughout my masters of psychology, and he he was actually the one that introduced me to this acceptance and commitment therapy pro, uh, philosophy. And so I'm pretty sure he'd be he'd be working on Nick in, in those sort of areas um, that we we're talking about today. And Hopefully, it looks like he's that may be starting along
1: the yeah a good path. How good would it be if he could? You know, oh, it'd, be, it'd be
2: amazing. I
1: mean, yeah. he's, he's, I personally think he's so good for the game. I really do. And um, Anthony, my last it's my last question is potentially a podcast in itself. So <laughs> it really is, and it's and and I know that it's a it's a big part of, of what you do. Um it's it's also people can get more information from you from your website which i'll I'll, I'll allow you know which which will be great for you to to give at the end um in terms of of parents you know and if there is there is tennis parents out there that are listening to this um if if we can just give them just a, a very quick synopsis of of some of the key things for them because I think it it is one of the most difficult jobs in the world you know again I, I, it's it's important as coaches that we empathize with that there is a lot of parents that get a bad press because they come across not doing it the right way but what is the right way to parent anyway it's very difficult so it, could you just give us a quick a quick roundup on on parental advice
2: yeah if i was to really summarize um parental advice I would, I would put it into three basic categories. And, and this is if the aim is to try to develop what I would call healthy mental toughness. It's the idea that we're developing and, and encouraging um, kids to uh, develop mental toughness, but also a you know, balanced, healthy perspective of competing and of life. So the three main categories, I would, the three C's I call them, um, so choice, so a child autonomy and, and giving its child as much choice as possible in terms of their journey, um, competence, and so, so communicating to children in a way that develops their self-belief and, um, and, and their sense of competence around their participation. And then the third C, care, is a massively important one. Um, in psych language, we call it unconditional positive regard or unconditional love. And the basic message here is that uh, for parents the, the better they can communicate a sense of love and worth to their child regardless of how they perform the 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 more healthily and the bigger chance that that child will develop um, mental toughness and, and a love of the game that allows them to um, you know play long term and, and have a great experience within the sport and also with this sense, if a parent can do a good job of this, that players will actually feel less fear when they compete and it will be less painful to lose because they, they have that natural foundation and base of, of a, of a loving supportive um, uh, parents. And that's a, that's a huge, huge, huge um, important thing. That, that would be the one thing that I would encourage parents to do. And recognizing this comes much more than coming from the words that they speak, uh, conditional, Uh, unconditional regard or conditional regard is communicated mostly by our own emotions and our own implicit communications like how we feel and and, um, uh, much more than, than the verbal communication.
1: Very good. And I just, the only thing I would add in there, Anthony, with that again, from personal experience, I had parents that definitely gave me all of those, you know, and I think they, they did a fantastic job of it. Yeah, I still I remember when I played at Wimbledon, let's say there was two thousand people around the court, I was highly nervous for two of them, not for the other one thousand nine hundred and ninety-eight, and that was my parents, because I wanted to make them proud, because I wanted yeah. them to and and I think there's such a strong there's such strong emotions already attached to to us and that wasn't me as a child that was me at 23 24 years old but i think there is such strong emotions attached to how we want our parents to to feel about us and already that if then we don't get those other bits correct you can only imagine what what a what a person what a player is is having to deal with um and and that's something guys that are listening Anthony is, is absolutely has some amazing obviously research. He's got some amazing work that he does uh, with parents <clears throat> and, and where because I, I want to bring this to an end because' I'm, I'm conscious of your time as well, Anthony. It, I could talk to you all day. you know we, I try and jump on as many zooms as I can a week to, to keep talking to you because I absolutely love talking to you about tennis and, and this side of it. Where can people find more information and and get in contact with you if they need to? Oh, just go
2: to mentally tough tennis.com and then yeah, plenty of ways to get in touch with me, but we've got a Facebook page. Um, um, and so if you, the, the most the easiest way, if you want to get um, communications from me is at mentally tough tennis.com, just sign up to the, the, what's called the pack method booklet. It's a little booklet that summarizes philosophy. And then, um, you know, you'll hear from me in terms of some, like, I usually release videos each week and, um, different bits and pieces. And so, yeah, that, that's the
1: easiest way. see, so you're having the little dabble of Instagram nowadays as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as a, bunch, as no. a
2: complete tech dummy, that's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, less than successful, but, um, my, my wife is a teacher. And so she's, um, she's 20 weeks pregnant. So she'll be at home quite a bit moving forward, assuming they don't go back to school in the next couple of weeks. But, uh, so I'm trying to get under her to be my social media guru, learning from well, you.
1: And, and congratulations on the on the pregnancy as well. We, well, th- thank you very much, Anthony, for joining us. It's been it's been amazing and
0: insightful and, and educational as always. Thanks very much, Anthony. Absolutely magic being on here. Uh, great insight into the mental quarter of the games. Thanks a million for your time.
2: My pleasure, guys. Always enjoy talking tennis generally and, and uh, the psychological aspects. And, yeah, great to, great to be on board and, and hopefully, uh, whether it be parents or players or coaches, get a bit out of it and, and can go and, um, uh, at the end of the day, help players enjoy the game and compete more effectively.
1: Thanks, Anthony. Thank you for listening all. Hope everybody enjoyed the show. What an amazing story that Anthony shared with us and showing all the different directions you can go through the vehicle that is tennis. In the next show, we have Mark Hilton, Dan Evans' coach. He's been on the ATP Tour for many years and shares with us some amazing stories and is well worth a listen. Hope Hope to have you guys back for that one.